Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. Do you feel like you're stuck in a dinner rut? With HelloFresh, you get fresh, pre-measured ingredients with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. Skip all those trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. You can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less. With over 25 recipes to choose from each week, there's something for everyone to enjoy. All recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. My favorite meal that you can get right now is the chili chili bang bang chicken. Go to the link in the description to get $80 off, including free shipping on HelloFresh, the number one meal kit. It's the language of the universe. But I don't understand it. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we welcome you back to episode number 76, where today we have yet another history of physics episode here, Mm -hmm. where today we will be discussing two very bright mathematicians, Pythagoras and Euler. Yes, sir. So we're trying to do an episode of History of Physics once a month. Mm -hmm. So like every three episodes. And I don't think... Three three to five. I mean, like three to five, because mainly we're doing it now because I know we missed a few. Like I think one or two months ago, we definitely missed a few uh, episodes. So we're kind of making up for them. But like on average, every three to five episodes, maybe we can drop a history of physics. Yeah. And I know it's it's one of our most popular episodes, actually, in terms of like that's first week downloads, like the amount an episode gets in one week. It is Mm -hmm. definitely like, if not the most downloaded. So, yeah. Let us know in the comments. I guess you guys like it. Let us know in the comments <laughs> who you want us to talk about. Um, if you have like some historical figures you want us to analyze on the podcast, drop that in the comments. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I enjoy history of physics, of course. History of physics is always interesting because not only are we learning about the individuals, but we're also learning about their contributions. Mm-hmm. And it's not only you guys. But I think it's mainly us because a lot of times we go into these episodes and I think we've mentioned this before, knowing nothing. Okay, not nothing, obviously, because they're still famous, you know, scientists. But like we we just know a very brief under or have a brief understanding of what they've done. But then after, you know, whatever work we do to get before the podcast and getting into the discussion that we always have, the amount of the amount of stuff we learn about these guys, about what they did, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so it's always always a learning experience for all of us for sure and um uh, so far i think our choices for you know people we talk about have been a little bit random um <laughs> i think sure. i think maybe it would have been a nice idea to like do episode one like very ancient mathematicians and then like work our way up through the history no, of events. I don't think that's important. I, I would I would more so say we should probably think of individuals who I don't even know how often this is, but if we are talking about people, like talk about people from the same era. Like the people we're talking about today are just not far well. apart. <laughs> far apart. But you whatever. Know, like not even close. Everybody knows so, Pythagoras. 
I mean, everyone. I mean, everyone knows. I guess Oilers. Not not, not everybody. Famous. Yeah, I guess so. But in the math world, for sure. But yeah, apart from the math world, I guess not. Also, because Pythagoras is something you learn. But anyways, for for future suggestions, what I was thinking was we could do. Yeah, maybe you know individuals who have a little more influence on each other. And obviously, you know, this is a history of physics. So if you want to drop a future history of physics idea, drop it in the comment below. If you're on YouTube. If you're on Spotify, I don't know, get on YouTube and drop it in the comment below. Yeah. And it, wherever you are, just go on YouTube and drop it in the comment below and we will reply. Yeah, just so everybody knows, by the way, there are things that we're going to not mention because we only have like, you know, a limited amount of time. And also we only did a limited amount of research. We're not about to read a whole book <laughs> every time we uh, speak about uh, somebody on the history of physics you know we just mm -hmm. read a few articles here and there write down a few notes and you know we might make a couple mistakes but that's not the point the point is just you know to get a a bird's eye view on how things went down in the past wow very nice way to say it. very right. nice way to put it before before we begin though ooh. yeah you were gonna, <laughs> yeah, gonna say let's get into some news so for our followers at least on Spotify. I don't even know if we can only say Spotify anymore because literally our yeah. other platforms are in the thousands. So I don't even know if this is a valid metric, but I guess you can kind of generalize our follower growth to similar as Spotify, right? Because the growth will be similar on all platforms. Sure. Av approximately, I'm assuming. So yeah, so on Spotify, we're sitting at 13,162 followers. Thank you to everyone crazy, who continues crazy. to follow and who keeps on smashing that follow button on Spotify. Our our listeners are sitting at nearly 42,000. We're learning at 50,000 listeners. So I think that's going to be a really cool uh, milestone. And chilling on our downloads, finally, we are sitting at 207. By the time this episode drops, probably, would it be 210? Probably 210. Yeah, we're, we've been getting, around on average, believe it or not, a thousand downloads a day. Damn! Yeah, that's right. That's right. For the past month, if you average the month, a thousand a day. So crazy. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, man. I know. So by the time this episode drops, it's going to be more like 210, which, you know, we're already, Damn. we're already like one tenth of the way you know mm -hmm. in between 200 and 300 mm -hmm. thousand which is crazy and this is all thanks to you guys you know the listeners so again thank you very much for continuing to listen we have utmost utmost gratitude Boom. any uh anything else parker yes question, sir question? yes sir you might be wondering why i'm about to say <laughs> hey go to the youtube video and leave a comment why because every single week we have a segment, very short, called the comment of the week, where we pick one of your comments from the comment section and you get shouted out on the episode. So make sure to go on this YouTube video, leave a comment for next week. Boom. This week's comment comes from Tazine. She Oof. says, very informative and very interesting episode covering daily aspects of life. You guys rock and your choices of guests are super. Keep educating the, the world. Good job, you too. Thank you so much for your comment. And uh, yeah, if you want to be comment of the week next week, you know exactly what to do. Okay, maybe we can break that elephant in the room. Uh, 
She is my mom. <laughs> yep. I know. She says some very nice things. I know. Thank you, mom. Supporting the uh, podcast as always. Supporting the podcast. Thank you very as much. Always. Uh, you know, I mean, who else if not family, right? So <laughs> thank you. And as always, if you want to be comment of the week, not only YouTube comments nowadays, mm -hmm. right? I think we've also kind of outsourced sure. into some really nice emails and Instagram messages that we get from you guys. So it's kind of a kind of a mix. Okay, too much talk. Let's get into it. All right. The history of physics. We're gonna start at the very beginning back in the day all right now pythagoras everybody knows pythagoras because it's like the first thing you learn when you know what like adding numbers is it's pythagoras the pythagorean theorem we're gonna get into that in a second but pythagoras was actually known to be quote unquote the first true mathematician ever to actually you know study mathematics before his time people would study you know like obviously <laughs> they didn't not have mathematics before mm -hmm. pythagoras but he was the first kind of generation to really you know define like the field mathematics this is what we're studying we're studying numbers relationships between numbers etc all right he actually lived get this from the year 570 bce to 495 bce this was about 2500 years ago now you might be wondering okay I'm about to I'm about to say a couple things on Pythagoras, but you you have to remember, this was two thousand five hundred years ago. This is older than Jesus, okay, which means that the information is possibly not correct, okay, and you know there's there's a lot of as they did back in the day, there's a lot of you know figures, other people that wrote about Pythagoras, and were they lying who knows because all we have is a piece of paper written in greek or latin ancient greek you know who knows but we have we have some information on him so so here we go here we go so why was pythagoras controversial did i even say i don't think i said it pythagoras was actually a very controversial figure in the field of mathematics and like science in general because he actually left behind zero mathematical publications or writings or anything the writings that we call like <coughs> pythagorean writings all came from pythagorean scholars which were people that kind of followed Pythagoras around, learned from Pythagoras, kind of like his disciples. And so they published things under their own names, but they also published things under the name of Pythagoras. So, of course, two and a half thousand years ago, somebody could have published something under Pythagoras's name that actually Pythagoras had nothing to do with, or the other way around pythagoras could have discovered something and then someone stole it wrote it down under their own name you never know but one thing that we do attribute 
to Pythagoras is Pythagoras's theorem. Possibly the most famous theorem of all time in mathematics. Um, I cannot even describe to you how important this theorem is. We can actually relate it to what Ray's going to talk about uh, in the second half when we get to like imaginary numbers because you can... Anyways, we'll get to that later. <laughs> but here we go. Actually, I'm, I'm going to say one more thing before we talk about his theorem. Um, when he was about 40 years old, he actually established a school in southern Italy. And um, that's where, you know, people came from around... I don't know if it was around the world. I don't know if they were really connected to the Americas or anything like that. But, um, you know, people came from around town to come and learn about, you know, math. The, the very first true mathematician, obviously. He, he wanted to tell people about the things he was discovering. And so, boom, he had a school. But it was actually kind of weird. Um, you know, <laughs> It, he had a school, but uh, it was more than just um, it was more than just learning about uh, uh, math and whatnot. It was more kind of like a um, think about it as like a Buddhist monk. You know what I mean? Like if you were to go and study at uh, at his school, which was located in Croton, um, it was pretty much like a lifestyle. You know what I mean? So he would teach like quasi religious teachings things like that he enforced like a vegetarian diet he was all into like rituals and and like weird things like that but hey he was a smart guy allegedly so we're gonna let it slide okay now getting into um the pythagorean theorem mm -hmm. if you don't know which i forgive you we can get a little <laughs> bit of ahead of ourselves so the Pythagorean... If I may, though, this is kind of like the classic example that people will give for if they either know or forget basic mathematics. You know, like yeah. in movies and TV, like they, they'll always say, oh, at least I know the Pythagorean theorem. Like the, I know basic math. Yeah. Or, oh, I don't even know the Pythagorean theorem. I mean, I don't even know basic math. So you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like it's a common lingo for basic math because it's the basic math, what we sure. all learn, right? So, and yeah, we it's... learn it super early. Because we do. it's it's so, so important. You know what I mean? It's it's like a geometric property. I mean, that yeah, we... it's important in mainly fields of math and like physics, of course. <laughs> I, mean, and like, and, I mean, you know what yeah. I mean? You know what I mean? But like for like a third grader to know A squared plus B squared equals C squared, I don't know how useful that is. I guess it's just it's nice to know I guess anyways so the sum <laughs> the sum of the squares is equal to the square of the hypotenuse there you go a squared plus b squared equals c squared on a right angle triangle yeah really? right angle triangle here we go you have to specify now one thing that is cool it's kind of like you know you know like the pie race that they had in the 1900s I, I mean it sounds older than it is <laughs> You know, a hundred years ago when computers started coming up, um, they were, there was a race to calculate digits of pi. Actually, this race started a, a really long time ago when we actually talked about this on our episode about trigonometry. 
I think we talked about pie in that episode. Anyways, um, there was a whole race. Yeah, no, for sure. That is where we... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely where we started. There was a race uh, to talk about... Sorry. To calculate the digits of pi. And this is also kind of similar. Less popular, though. But actually calculating Pythagorean triples is kind of like this math thing that is nice. What is a Pythagorean triple? So, for example, uh, 3, 4, and 5 is a Pythagorean triple because 3 squared plus 4 squared equals 5 squared. So it's just, it's, it's a triplet of numbers, three numbers, where if you square two of them and add them together, you get the third one squared. And, you know, there are some popular ones. I think, okay, off the top of my head, I think there, I think like 6, 9, and 13. I might be wrong. But, but whatever. Um, there, there's a whole bunch of them. I think there's an infinite mm-hmm. amount, probably. Um, no, there's, there's some. No, there's. No, don't say that because there's some kind of big theory with that. Like if is there, there is a finite number of Pythagorean triples, there's no I'm way. Pretty sure there's like there's no way there's a there finite not? number. No, no, no. That no. That's what I'm saying. I'm pretty sure there's like a theory suggesting or asking that question. And there's probably oh. a solution to it, which I don't know the answer. I don't of, know either. But don't say probably, because <laughs> I think it's probably a serious, pretty serious thing in mathematics that you can just. Okay, you can't just here's say what I'll. I'm going to say intuitively. Intuitively, there are yes, an infinite sure. amount of Pythagorean triples, but interestingly enough, let's try to put ourselves in the mindsets of Pythagorean scholars, two thousand five hundred years ago okay they didn't really know that much about numbers you know compared to today they really knew nothing at all and pythagoras i will talk about this in a few minutes he was a strong believer in like the religion of numbers he thought that numbers were these godly figures that descended and leaked through the fabric of the universe and whatever so he was you know when when you talk about pythagorean triples it's like ah you know of course you have these perfect integer triplets that perfectly fit into the equation of a right angle triangle the lengths and the squares and whatever it's like yes so very very nice obviously if you think about it for two seconds, you'll realize that non-integer solutions exist. And that, you know, if you just draw a random right angle triangle, you're probably not going to get a perfect triplet, depending on your units, whatever. Mm-hmm. The point, the entire point of what I'm trying to say here is that there was one Pythagorean scholar who actually studied the isosceles triangle, which has two sides of length one that meet at a 90 degree angle. And then the third side actually has a length of root two. So he tried to calculate um, what the actual value of the square root of two was, okay? Back in the day, they worshipped whole numbers, integers. Integers were so beautiful and perfect. So in his head, he's like, oh, I'm going to calculate the value of root 2 and it's going to be like some fraction, 
whatever. Turns out, root 2 is irrational. And this actually broke the brains, the thinking of the Pythagorean scholars. They thought that the world was, was essentially a product, a, a descendant of, of numbers. And then now you have this thing, this number that cannot be expressed using whole numbers. And so that mathematician actually went on to discover a whole bunch of things about irrational numbers. And Pythagoras did not like him because Pythagoras believed in like <clears throat> this discrete world of whole numbers. And it actually turns out that irrational numbers are very, very important. And uh, they, kind of, they kind of evolve mathematics, which is, which is very important. You know what I mean? This happens in every single field. People believe in things that have been established and then something goes wrong. A little catalyst happens and then boom, everything crumbles. For example, quantum mechanics, but we've already talking about, spoken about that. Yeah. yeah. So one thing that's interesting, Ray, I think you know about this as well, but they were using Pythagor the Pythagorean theorem before Pythagoras was even born in Babylon and Egypt. There are records of triangles. I think these were like just written down, but the triangles would have um, like one side had a length of three units. The other side had a length of four units. And then the hypotenuse had a length of exactly five units. This is an application of the, the theorem. Um, the reason why we give Pythagoras so much recognition for this is because he was actually known to provide the first proof for the theorem, which is arguably more important than actually just drawing like a triangle that has, you know, three, four, five in mm -hmm. length. Um, but yeah. Yeah, for sure. What do you think about that? No, I mean, he definitely had big advancements in because proving in mathematics is just inherently <laughs> more important than finding out the solution, right? Understanding yeah. that the I mean, sorry, sorry, sorry. Knowing a solution exists versus proving the solution, very, very, very different things. Mm -hmm. or, or even knowing the solution versus proving the solution exists are two very different things, right? So, yeah, I mean, going on to Euler, we'll actually also see how proof is a very um very important thing that can definitely take the name away from you because you know as as you very well said someone else probably did it but because he proved it he took he took mm -hmm. credit and now every single human again not everyone but you know what i mean yeah. knows his name at least in essence for sure right yeah also um <clears throat> the thing about proofs is that if you prove something you know, it's beyond doubt because every proof stems from the very beginning, right? Like the field axioms mm -hmm. and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I actually read a post about this on Reddit recently. I don't remember exactly what it said, but 
it said that um like something about the axioms and that they somehow they can be not self um self-consistent the whole point of an axiom is that i know is, though i know but there was there's some kind of debate happening and i don't know if it was just somebody trolling but it caught my attention <laughs> i will definitely probably. i'll definitely try to find it again probably um i'm saying now that we're in the middle of you in the middle of pythagorean you you, you still have more pythagoras so maybe maybe we can change up the history of physics routine instead of a whole quick half an hour to you half an hour to me maybe we add some stuff maybe i get into euler real quick because you were saying proof stuff i want to talk about just mm -hmm. a little bit about especially relating to something he did i don't want to spoil anything so let's talk a little bit about leonard euler arguably the greatest mathematician of all time of all time right swiss mathematician and he was his I mean, his family was also friends with a very popular family that we may be aware of, the Bernoulli family. So we got all the Bernoullis. And some, something that I didn't know until today, and I'm going to be completely honest about this. You know, usually in science, you don't want to like, you know what I mean? You don't want to be, mm -hmm. but I'm going to be completely honest. I thought all the Bernoullis was one Bernoulli. <laughs> I did as well. Yeah, like seriously. And, uh, like the thing I, about I, it, I thought the Bernoulli equation, the Bernoulli number, all those Bernoulli were the same Bernoulli, mm -hmm. but it's just not. Did you know that um, they actually also have like there's a a specific type of differential equation that's called the Bernoulli equation. Um, I thought it was the same guy, but now I'm, I'm not, starting. I'm starting to doubt. That's what I'm saying. It's a whole family of Bernoullis, yeah. right? And good news, the Euler family. Like his father, uh, Leonard Euler's father, went to school with Johann Bernoulli, who was kind of like the dad of the I whole family. I think it's pronounced Johann. Johann, probably. Sorry, that was my mistake. <laughs> oh, yeah. You but know yeah, what I just thought of, thing. by the way? This is actually yeah. our last podcast that we're doing over Zoom. <laughs> Real quick. Shouldn't it? Uh, that would be a crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I guess I guess they're going to find out now. Anyways. So, yeah, this is our last podcast we're doing over Zoom. Our next one is going to be in person because as you guys know, definitely. Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, as you guys know, Parker and I are moving downtown next week, so yeah, it's gonna be crazy. Anyways, <laughs> let's continue on. Let's continue on. Um, it's not even doctor because I don't think he officially got his PhD. I think there was a there was a thing with there, but uh, let's just say Euler. Also, I don't even tell you the year that he was. His era, his era was the 18th century. So he was born 1707, yeah, 1707. And he basically lived for a, a big amount of the 18th century, died 18, uh, 1783. So as you can see, like 2,200 years after, after Pythagorean. So again, not even close to the same sure. era. Again, Wait, not that they not had true. many. 2,200 years? The math is off there. What do you mean? No, because oh, it's, it's, it's 1,700 oh, no, and right. 500, right? right? right. <laughs> yeah, because he's because he's 500 BC. I forget exactly. what I just said. This guy, this guy. Anyway, so big thing about uh, Euler's family and the Bernoulli family being relatively close is that originally Euler's father was in... Man, I forgot. 
Like, you know, when you're starting to be a priest, like that thing, like he was, he was basically in theology, his, his father and him were yeah. also going to theology in university. Now he get, he got into university at the age of 14, which I'm told is not a very uncommon age back in that year. Like if you're actually interested, you would do it at that, at that age. Right. And the, I, and the thing is he was going originally into theology. He actually got a master's of philosophy in theology and again, subjects relating to that. However, in this whole period of him study, studying at the University of Basel, which is where he was doing all this, he met, or his father introduced him to his friend, Johann Bernoulli. And Johann started to tutor uh, Leonard every Saturday. And soon enough, he saw, hey, this guy has got something. This guy has something that I don't know about. So via the persuasion of Johann Bernoulli, he convinced Leonard's dad, father, to allow him to switch. Because again, I'm assuming parental figures it was, it was a very big deal then. It's not really like, I want to do this, so I do it. But yeah, so he allowed him to switch to a mathematics stream, basically. And yeah, I mean, the rest is history, right? And then he just... Okay, so Euler is an individual who has done everything he is in various fields of mathematics so many that i won't even be able to get through them today no way impossible he's in he has affected the fields of physics light optics wave mechanics directly he has also directly affected astronomy interestingly uh, enough uh, the, this is a story from euler he was looking at the sun through a telescope without you know, very good equipment, which caused him to kind of get blind in an eye. And I believe it was an illness that made it worse. But because he didn't take the proper precautions or the medications, because I'm assuming he's just like, screw this, he just became totally blind. And this guy, totally blind, was like doing all this stuff still. Wait, like what he age was did still he making blind? crazy advances, I believe... What did he do after he got blind? I there was, again, I mean, I'm going to bring it up in a bit, but there was a particular subject that he was in after this as well because he got he was totally blind somewhere 1770, 1771, 1773. So it's still a little lot closer to because he died 1783, right? So it's a lot closer to when he passed away. But um, it just I just think that it's a little... I think the whole story about don't look at the sun without proper protection comes from this Euler story. Because he did it and he didn't use proper protection. So I just think that that's... I'm sure funny. other people have done that too. Oh, no, for sure. 100%. But I'm assuming he's probably one of the bigger ones because his name is anyway so big. So this is a popular story, right? Mm -hmm. But the big thing that I wanted to talk about um, in comparison with your proof and Pythagorean just proved it and took it. The Euler number. I actually did not know that this was also not... This was actually not an Euler thing. So the Euler's number was first thought about by Johann's brother, Jacob Bernoulli. So this is actually the original family, I believe. I think it's Johann and Jacob. And I think Johann's kids, because Johann's kid is Daniel. And Daniel Bernoulli is the Bernoulli equation in physics. And then his other son passed. They're like eight Bernoullis, man. There are a lot of Bernoullis. I'm not sure about all of them. But anyways, Johann's brother, Jacob Bernoulli, was... Um, solving for a, a compounding interest formula. And I, 
anyone who knows Euler's number knows that this is the basis. Uh, this is the base for deriving it. So the idea is, okay, you have some amount of money. I'm just going to give an example. This is how Jacob thought of it as well. Because again, he's thinking of compounding interest. If you have some money and you are getting paid interest on it, let's say yearly, after five years, how much money will there be? Well, if it's simple interest, you're just multiplying that same amount. So it's just a constant amount you can just add. But if you're compounding it, you're going to be adding that same amount to itself every year. Right, so there's that classic compounding formula. Again, if you're not aware of it, don't worry into the math of it. I just want to explain it. But if you are, then maybe you can picture it in your head. Right, so what uh, Jacob thought about was, okay, the big thing about compounding is, well, how often do you do it, right? If you do it annually and it's compounding, I mean, everything compounds annually, right? Because at the end of the year is when you are recompounding in this situation, you would get X amount of dollars at the end of it, right? The, the, again, you can you can just plug these numbers in depending on how much you have and whatnot. The idea that he thought about is what if we take these number of compounding periods and keep adding it? So instead of annually annual compounding, let's do semi-annual. Let's do quarter. Let's do monthly. Let's keep shrinking the time that it takes to compound and let's see how much money will there be in my bank. The question is, or the intuitive answer is that it's infinite, right? Because if, if I'm continuously compounding, right? Uh, and the number that they take is 100% compound rate. Again, not that, again, this is not really tied down to finance. Mm -hmm. This is mainly math, like math. But so the idea is you take this, you take this value and you shrink it into how many times we are compounding it. And we call that N. Now, our idea is that we are taking N to infinity, right? Because instead of one per year, we're taking not 12 per year would be monthly, we're taking infinity per year. Now, as mentioned before, the intuitive answer would be that you have infinite amount of money, right? Because if every second of the day, or not even second, every infinitesimal, it is compounding, would you not have infinite money? And the answer is no. Is no. <laughs> right, and that is where Jacob Bernoulli said this limit as n approaches infinity of the compounding interest formula equals e. Now, why e? I don't actually know, but it was e, e for Euler. No, but no, he wasn't even no, he wasn't no. even a thing yet, right? Euler wasn't even a thing yet. This is still Jacob. This is still um, his Euler's tutor's brother, right? And his tutor was in his generation with his father, so you can kind of think like he's a generation higher. So I'm assuming there wasn't much of a correlation between the letter E and Euler quite yet. But here's where it comes. Euler was the first mathematician to actually take this value and solve for it, to which he got the famous 2.71 whatever that we have that we now know as E, right? And we commonly refer, it, refer to it as the Euler's number for the sole reason that he was the one that proved it. And not, he was the one that, I don't know, you brought up that Pythagorean example. I just thought this is the perfect one to slide in right here. Because again, he just took, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying Euler didn't do work. He obviously probably did more than Bernoulli did, right? Proving, proving something like this is no easy task, especially in that day and age with that type of math. If you actually use his proofs today, it's actually not incorrect. It's just not up to the mathematical standards that we have it. 
So it's kind of sad, but because uh, he used a lot of generalizations, he used a lot of algebraic generalizations, which apparently nowadays we kind of frown upon. Mm-hmm. So he still got it done, but the way he did it was by taking a power series expansion, which is something that a lot of people had never even thought about. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this, I mean, he made advancements in almost every field of mathematics. I'm talking geometry, functions, functionals, analysis. Top, he invented topology, basically. He invented graph theory. He, he's crazy, he man. Definitely That's what I'm saying. Has, he just done so much stuff. Like, his name is definitely, like, in every part of math. Like, every every, everywhere of you math. go, it's just like, oh, this is Euler's formula for this. Euler's this something. Euler's, Euler's whatever. There. Euler's there. And even in physics, he has had monstrous, monstrous contributions. In cleanest example... Okay, well, that's actually more math. Because I was actually going to give a really good example, but I'm like, wait, that's a little more math. Because I'm thinking of like the Euler-Lagrange equations where you can solve for stationary points on these functionals. And it was a big advancement. Obviously, he didn't do it by himself, but it was combination with other, other papers that led to stuff like this. But again, all used directly in physics, right? Euler-Lagrange equations um, are commonly used in, well, Lagrangian mechanics, right? And Hamilton... Uh, yeah, also in Hamiltonian mechanics. So very, very, very famous. And again, he was mainly focusing not on any particular field, but just stuff that he was interested in. Like this guy was just doing everything in the book, right? And anyways, I mean, that's basically the derivation of E, what he thought about. Again, I'm not going to go through the actual derivation itself, of course, but uh, it's a very, very, very simple thing to do if you know any any amount of, you know, power series and power series expansion and a little bit of calculus, you can very easily derive it, how we get to E and how we get to that number. But again, it's just an interesting concept that he laid out on the table, right? And now we know it is Euler's number. That's Damn. that, you know? What a, what a fantastic it's story. It's tough. It's tough, yeah. Um, did fantastic you want to keep going? Because what, what about Jacob? What about Jacob? <laughs> he got left you behind. Know? No, I mean dust. all of the Bernoullis, though. To be honest, like no one, no one knows who's who. You know, yeah. like I mean, unless you really know their work, you're just gonna say, "Oh, that's Bernoulli's this, Bernoulli's principle, Bernoulli's equation." Two different Bernoullis. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> like, you know, like I don't know. Anyways, it's just fun. I mean, it's the family empire. It is, yes, of course. No, I mean it's good that they have. I mean, imagine, you know, that that's a powerful family in in the science community. Probably, arguably, one of the most powerful families in the science community. Mm-hmm. Right, because of that whole influence. So, anyways, continuing on E, uh, some interesting properties. Why is E important? First of all, because of its interesting properties. A lot of things in math and a lot of things in physics of, as well come about because you see them very often. Let me give you a very easy example, very ob- um, obvious example. Planck's constant, or sorry, sorry, the reduced Planck's constant. You see h over two pi, which is the reduced Planck's constant. Almost everywhere in physics, a lot in quantum mechanics, a lot of places. So this guy made H-bar, another constant that basically you just see a lot in physics. And that's the very, very, very similar with E as well. It's, a, it's, a, it's an irrational number, right? So you can't make up E with any other numbers. And it's, you cannot represent it as a fraction, right? Which are all the crazy properties similar to pi. It's an infinite decimal. And the whole thing is, well, you know, what was I trying to say? Shoot, I forgot. 
<laughs> something shows up everywhere and they show up everywhere in physics <laughs> they show up everywhere in physics similar to how e shows up everywhere almost in mathematics you know so number one is this compounding formula and uh well number two will be in any type of radioactive decay any type of exponential growth we have e and as one of the most logarithmic base stuff logarithmic the natural logarithm again is tested with e mainly because of again the logarithm is mainly because of its good usefulness in exponentiation right which is why it's used as a logarithm but an amazing amazing property of e and all of us know this all the calculus the derivative of the exponential or e to the x is itself Fantastic. which is just if you want to know more about E, make sure to check out episode number two of the Math and Physics oh, podcast. Oh, yeah, that was old, eh? That was old. Constants in nature. Oh, no, wait, episode three, sorry. Episode three. Number two was oh, higher yeah. dimensions. Yeah, oh, damn, you remember that. God damn. But yeah, so really cool properties about E. And again, why is it so useful? Because it's just seen everywhere. It's not really, I mean, it's useful again because we have all these properties that we can use with them. Right, like when we're taking the derivative again of this particular equation, if you have this anywhere, you have itself, which is a massive advantage, especially when you're taking into account a lot of complicated equations. Another example is in quantum mechanics. E to the i phi is the fundamental wave equation for everything, right? E to the power. Okay, okay. Again, I, I guess for people who haven't aren't familiar with that, probably got very confused. Wait, I wouldn't say wave equation. No, but it's part of wave mechanics. Yeah. It's fundamental to wave mechanics, mm -hmm. right? Because the way that waves wave is following E, right? The way it drops, it drops. Like when, again, this is very specific to quantum mechanics, but again, I'm simply giving examples of E. If you have an infinite well, or if you have a well where you have some waves oscillating, and you have not well, not let's say not infinite well, but let's say it can drop down, like you know, oh, what's it called? The, it's just a finite, not an infinite well, just, finite just a finite well. It drops down as a factor of e. Well, you right? should be more specific. So I'm just trying to say, I'm just trying to say that e pops up in very many places, right? Which is why we regard it as such an interesting number. Because originally, when I you know read the the origination of e, I'm like compounding interest like okay it's cool for banking but why is this cool in math <laughs> for at banking. all or like or like finance yeah. you know but like why is it cool in math at all and again the my main reason is simply because of how many times we see it where we see it everywhere mm -hmm. right so that's e for you do you want to go on pythagorean yeah let's go back to sure. pythagoras let's get back to let, let's get back to a little pythagorean before we go into uh let's think about yeah ancient history all Let's right think about it so numerology this was something that um pythagoras was a huge advocate of he his beliefs stem from the idea that the entire universe comes down to numbers you know just mm -hmm. a, a number is just so perfect that everything just boils down to numbers and here's a quote from aristotle which he lived a little bit after uh, Pythagoras, but he was like, he was very into Pythagorean math and that kind of stuff. 
so this is what this is what he said. He said the so-called Pythagoreans, who were the first to take up mathematics, not only advanced the subject but saturated with it. They fancied that the principles of mathematics were the principles of all things. Okay, so yeah. I I mean I can I can relate to this quote. I also do think that the entire universe is just mathematical. Everything is everything is an equation. Everything is can be represented. Yeah, that's right. Mathematically. But also, yeah. like there is a subjective side, of course, to reality or you know our our perceived reality, and that has everything to do with like psychology you know what i mean and like mm-hmm. neuroscience and all that stuff mm-hmm. also a little bit of metaphysics you know because there are things that we just don't know like what is consciousness we've talked i mean at that time at that time philosophy and psychology was basically physics. and math that like, were, they and, were yeah, all exactly like, it was it was basically that. philosophy exactly. was like mathematics um yeah. but what was i trying to say oh yeah i was trying to say that um like i'm talking about right now like there is this one side to the universe where it's like there's one half where it's what actually is and what actually exists. And the other half is what we observe and what we process in our own brains. And I believe that the half that just is just exists is purely mathematical. The rest is all just in our heads. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. colors, Colors are just something that we make in our brains. It's not an actual thing. The actual thing behind colors is purely mathematical. Just an example. Um, but they were a lot more extreme <laughs> back in Pythagoras's day. And one thing that was very sacred, a sacred symbol to this group, is called the tetra tetractus the tetractus and okay the tetractus is a pyramid where here's how you construct it okay so on the first row you have one the second row you have two third row you have three fourth row you have four okay and this builds a pyramid an equilateral triangle and um each side has unit length uh three three units and there are exactly 10 dots in the tetractus. And when I, when, when I was saying like first row, there's one, second row, there's two, I'm, I'm talking about like dots. And, okay. and when you make these four rows of dots, you end up with when this triangle mm-hmm. that has 10 dots. Mm-hmm. And this was a sacred symbol because the number 10 was actually seen as the perfect number. Who knows? They actually, um, they followed this sacredity. Is that a word? The sanctity of the number 10? I think that's a better word. They respected the sanctity of the number 10 by never having gatherings with more than 10 people. Kind of weird, (laughs) but whatever. (laughs) Kind of weird for sure. But let's go over. You think that's how the... That's how the base 10 came from? No, no, they definitely no, no, end up. no, 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 no definitely not. <laughs> yeah, uh, but let's talk about... I, know, I, was just trying to, I was just trying to make some connections. Yeah, no, but 10, it just, I don't know. Maybe one of the reasons why it became the sacred number is because it's like base 10 
maybe 10 maybe is the perfect number yeah. dot 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 but let's look at mm-hmm. some other numbers so the number one was sacred it was seen as the origin of all things the number that was associated to the origin of everything makes sense number one makes sense That'd number sense. two was associated it represented matter i don't know why <laughs> maybe it's kind of like one of those things where you know one is the origin of all things and then like you get like you you sink down into like physicalness of life so two is like mm-hmm. matter three is the ideal number because it has a beginning a middle and an end one two three who knows who knows but, i'm i didn't I, i'm not the one who made this no, i know and i'm not blaming you i'm just saying why like okay number Can four you... represented the seasons as well as the four elements sure sure back then okay sure. Sure. number five okay this one this one's probably the weirdest one number five represents <laughs> marriage because here's the reason it is the sum of two and three that's what it says <laughs> probably like what two and then three kids or something i don't know i have no idea were. Because three is the perfect... Oh, maybe. Maybe because three is the ideal number. Three is the ideal number of kids to have, right? And two <laughs> is obviously married. So two, uh, I don't know. It makes sense, uh, right? I don't I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm just trying to make good, sense of it, bro. Uh, the, the next sacred number is number seven. It's actually the last sacred number um, other than ten. Wait, what happened to six? I don't know. It's just not... Oh, that's not a sacred it's, number. It's not a that's part just of a regular it. number. Yeah. Also, one through five is all sacred. Yeah. Oh, and uh, number seven is sacred because at the time they thought there were seven planets, mm. so it represented the planets. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, how we know more about the world as we progress. Yeah. Now, yeah, that's interesting. A couple of things. I'm gonna go a little quickly because I know you got some things to say about Euler. Mm-hmm. Um, so music theory, Pythagoras was an advocate of music theory he discovered that harmonious notes have whole number ratios what does this mean okay if you have a note uh and you have another note uh the difference in frequency is a whole number ratio so it could be like one to two or three to four or five to three whatever notes that sound good when played at the same time have this property of having whole number ratios. And now think about it. You're a guy that thinks that the universe is a product of numbers and just perfect integers and all that stuff. And then you find out that notes of music that sound good have to do with whole numbers and their ratios. And so obviously this was an incredible discovery he must have felt like he discovered the key to the universe. He was like, the universe is one big vibration of mathematical knowledge. And we see this through music and we see it through numbers and all these things. Um, Yeah, he also thought that um, the planets moved according to mathematical equations, which he's right. Um, It actually wasn't um confirmed until kepler discovered elliptical orbits and all that stuff Mm -hmm. but 
The point is, he thought that each orbit, so the motions of the planets, were tied to musical notes. And they moved in a symphony. Yeah. <laughs> no, but they didn't. I mean, right. I, I mean, I don't know. No, I mean, is 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 that? That's what he has thought. That been, oh, that's what he thought. Yeah. But like, did he? I mean, I don't think we. Right? I don't think we subscribe to that idea nowadays. That right? the planets <laughs> have musical. Notes. I'm just trying to think of it because I mean, it's an interesting idea to think about. But I don't know. No, I don't. I really don't think so. But the last I thing so. I wanted to talk about is his um, influence in astronomy. So he was actually the first or one of the first like respected big figures to say that the earth was spherical. Take that in. Take that in. Wow. He was, you know, he was a math guy. He was like, you know what? Earth equals sphere. He probably had some reasons behind it. Um, pretty clever reasons. You know what I actually find that the like the oldest mathematicians, when you read about um, like Aristotle, they studied geometry and you know things that you can kind of hold in your hand, right? And their proofs for theorems and whatnot were so clever because they had almost no tools. They had mm-hmm. they had no calculus, nothing like that. So they had to just come up with creative, interesting solutions to problems and boom. Next thing you know, we use those tools to prove other things and other things. Next thing you know, we got calculus. Next thing you know, here we are. Last thing I wanted to say was that... Um, some sources say that, you know, maybe this is not so true, but some say that this is true. Um, Py- the Pythagorean school, right, um, is associated to discovering the platonic solids, which, if you don't know, are regular solids or solids created from regular shapes, meaning that each, if you look at the for example, a cube is made up of a shape called a square, and the the sides are all equal length, right? That's that's what a regular sh- shape is, and that makes a platonic solid. Mm-hmm. And there are many solids you can make. There are actually six, I think. I think six is the number. Um, there's a, a pyramid you can make with equilateral triangles. There's a cube. There's one with hexagons. There's one with decagons or whatever this is this is all from the top of my head probably not true but you can go search it up if you want um (laughs) i love the disclaimers but here's where this connects to astronomy kepler was actually a self-declared pythagorean respecter pythagorean studier right he agreed oh i forgot to mention Pythagoras was one of the main characters that proposed a heliocentric model of the universe, very ahead of his time. Didn't you? Oh yeah, no, you I said, said spherical. spherical he said spherical. But, he didn't uh, say this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, heliocentric. Yeah, very ahead of his time. What I wanted to say was that Kepler, who also believed in the heliocentric model, was like, "Hey, Pythagoras, he's a cool guy 
who is also smart, so I'm going to subscribe to his ideas. He started reading about the platonic solids and he's like, hold on, let me connect this to the solar system. And he actually found that if you nest these platonic solids, one inside of the other, you can actually find the ratios of the planet's orbits relative to each other. So for example, if you take a pyramid and you put a sphere inside that pyramid, um, you get a certain size sphere. And the circumference of that sphere, you remember that. And then what you do is you draw a cube around that, um, around the outside of that um, pyramid. You draw a circle or a sphere around that cube, the ratio between the circumferences of that big sphere versus the small sphere have the same ratios of the orbits of the planets. So, and you just, ah, you, you just keep nesting these shapes, one inside of it. And yeah, you find that the ratios uh, match up sort of kind of okay. If you want to, if you want to do more research, just go on Wikipedia and search up Kepler's platonic solid model of the solar system. And you'll see there's like pictures of it. Uh, it looks really cool. And um, yeah, I, I know my, my mouth is not as good as pictures. So there you go. <laughs> you have to say it like that. <laughs> like what? Anyway, but like, yeah, he's definitely, I mean, it's really cool seeing that, you know, the foundations laid out back in 500 BC helped someone in, shoot, when was Kepler? Like, like 1600, 1700s, right? Kepler? Kepler was 16. Yeah, 16, 16, 1600, right? Yeah. yeah. So it's so cool to see how, well, I mean, clearly they can influence each other, you know, using a little bit of the tools, the foundations laid out then. I mean, heck, we use Newtonian mechanics, I mean, um, calculus now, and we probably will be for the foreseeable future, right? So Newton's going to be there forever. So <laughs> there's going to be, you know. But yeah, so that's just a really cool fact and really neat how, you know, Kepler continues that uh, Pythagorean future but obviously mm -hmm. who's gonna forget Pythagoras? Mm -hmm. right, back sure. to Euler back to Euler so we have E right we have E now something with E that a lot of people may know is a really weird formula a really weird formula comes from or I mean it's just called the Euler's formula and the reason it's weird is because it's mathematically not counterintuitive, it just makes no sense. Like if I tell you that an irrational number raised to the power of a complex number multiplied by another irrational number equals negative one. There's no way you would believe me because that makes no sense. But that's basically, you know, what this, what this whole, what this whole proof is. And I just find it I don't know. This has always been that one thing that's just really cool. That's always astounded people. You know, a lot of people will find a lot of people will say this is one of again arguably one of the greatest formulas alive, right? Because it uses number one. Well, it uses one very simple idea, and that's the power series. That's literally what it does. So the idea is very very simple. It basically, you take the exponential, e to the x, you expand it using its power series, and then you do something interesting. Euler's like, hey, I see this power series here, but what if 
What if, instead of to the power of x, I multiply that by the imaginary number? Now, the imaginary number is also a letter that Euler, that Euler coined. The i equals square root of negative 1 is something coined by Euler. Now, pi, the Greek letter, is also something coined by Euler. The summation symbol, sigma, is also Ooh, a term coined by Euler. That's, yeah. that's pretty cool. Right? right? And a, a really cool thing, which I actually forgot to mention that I'm just thinking about right now, is the notation for a function was also coined oh, yeah. by Euler. And that is the f of x notation. Was all like the whole idea of what a function actually is was also got from Euler. So I just find it really cool. So this guy does a lot of stuff, right? This guy is clearly um, very interested in in what he does, and it's it's clearly showing us, right? It's clearly showing it's clearly showing that to us. So the classic is well, I mean, as I was saying for Euler's Euler's identity, once you put that i in there and you expand the numbers. You see something interesting about i is that i squared equals minus 1, right? So a lot of the i's now disappear. So what you do is you group the i's and then you group the non-i's. And then what do you get? You get a complex number, ladies and gentlemen. And that complex number is the Euler identity. Cosine x plus i sine x. And... That Euler identity, again, comes, how do we get cosine x? Where did cosine come from? People might be wondering. Power series. The power series, so once you take, a, when, once all the even, uh, even powers, right, gets all negative 1, right? Because the i turns the, uh, the i squared, i4 turns to negative 1. So we, when we group them together, we notice that that is the power series expansion for cosine of x. And when we do the same for i, we find that that is the power series expansion for the sine of x. Hence the formula. And I just find it's, um, it's a very nice way to describe the relationship between all of these variables. Now, again, you might be wondering where did the pi thing come from? Well, just substitute x for pi, right? And you'll get that whole thing, right? Because, uh, yeah, right? Because i sine x yeah. is zero, exactly. So you'll get that whole identity if you simply substitute x for pi. So it's a very interesting identity. Again, the whole purpose of it is simply to show the relationships between these variables and simply mm -hmm. to show the importance of 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 power series expansion, I think. Just you in know general. What would be a cool episode if we did an episode on imaginary numbers and we could talk about conjugates? And matrices, Hermitian matrices, all those things. Pauli matrices. That would matrices. be a very interesting episode. Yes, we could definitely do something like that. Mm -hmm. Keep that in mind. I mean, we are, now we have a future episode in mind, right? So that's so that's Euler's formula, right? A really crazy advancement that he made in well mathematics. One of the things. Now I I know it's an hour, but we still have some stuff to talk about, or at least I do. So I'm just gonna quickly skim by them. Because there are a lot of things that he did, as mentioned before, right? So, as mentioned, he's done some cool things in physics. I mean, sorry, he's done some cool things in math. Notably with E, with I, with all these crazy variables. So, let's get into another topic of math that he also had major contributions in. And that would be graph theory, network theory. 
So a common problem, actually, should I start with this? I think I think this would be a better, I think this would be a better start because he also uses his sigma notation there, the basal problem. So I know I'm I'm all over the place, but I'm gonna speed it up. Don't worry. So <laughs> the basal problem has been a famous problem that a lot of the Bernoullis couldn't actually solve. Um, Lagrange could also not solve. A lot of people tested it out there. And what is it? Well, we know the sum of the reciprocals of integers is, or it, that diverges, right? And what that means is 1 over 1 plus 1 over 2 plus 1 over 3 plus 1 over 4. It's a harmonic series that diverges. And that was proved. Now, the basal problem is the reciprocal or the sum of the the sum of the reciprocal of the squares of the integers. So it's basically the summation of 1 over k squared from k equals 1 to infinity. Now, does that converge or diverge? And interestingly enough, this was a problem that could not be solved for a very long amount of time, right? A lot of individuals, as mentioned, those famous mathematicians, took their knack at it, couldn't do anything. And then comes Euler. And he says that this solution is pi squared over 6. Yeah, that's what he said. Now, obviously, I'm not going to go through the math with you. And this is something that Parker and I actually had to do in, in our second year of math, which was interesting. But he got this very complicated, convoluted summation, this, this uh, well, technically this series, and he or not converted, but he solved for it with something that is relating to the circumference of a circle, to the area of a pi, right? Like, what does pi have anything to do with this particular series, right? Now, again, not going into the math of it, but just wanted to, just wanted to skim by the fact that the basal problem, a very famous thing that Euler kind of tackled and went by through it, explaining it, you know, using all of the work that he had done so far. You know, pretty cool there. Uses a little bit of that. Again, just talking about if it's converging or diverging, he's like, hey, listen, it converges to this number. So it was a really, really cool thing that he did back then. Continuing on to some of his other notable uh, notable contributions, as I was mentioning, some other things in math that he was doing, you know, relating to graph theory and stuff like that. There's a famous uh, problem, the seven bridges of Konigsberg, which is basically, uh, there's an orientation of seven bridges. And the question is, well, can you reach... Can you cross every bridge once and come back to the same starting point? Basically, just one trip on every bridge. And in that particular problem, the answer was no. And how he got it was he mapped. Now, this was the very first time that anyone had done this. He had taken this particular scenario and he had mapped it onto a graph using nodes. So the nodes basically represented, I'm assuming, the directions, or not the directions, but the amount of crosses that he could do, where the crosses are. Again, all of this is available online, just a quick aud audio explanation. Well, the nodes are, are actually the land masses, and the connections are the bridges between land masses. Oh, so sorry, sorry. So the actual connection, the road, well, the, the line drawn between them is the connection, is the actual bridge that we're taking into consideration then. And the idea was basically we're taking all these bridges and we're basically just drawing dots and we're seeing if this will work. Now, what does it mean we're seeing? This is where Euler comes into the picture. He mathematically proves that for you to be able to do this once and come back to the starting place, 
each node must have an even number of nodes connected to it. And for seven bridges, that's not the case. So the idea, again, comes from representing this as a mathematical graph and then figuring out, again, mathematically figuring out is can it be possible using X and can it be possible using Y? And I'm assuming he figured out that, hey, it's possible only if each node is paired with an even number of nodes. So that was a really cool thing. And an advancement of this particular graph theory that he also used a little later on was the night tour. So any any uh, chess players out there uh, may, may or may not be familiar with something called a night tour, which is basically the number of or a a a a graph basically like um what am i trying to say like a, a like a drawing board? like a yeah no, no on a chessboard what a path oh my god oh. totally forgot that word a path that a knight can take from any position what would it be basically that's the whole that's the whole tour so a tour a knight tour is called open if the path if ends that means it can't take any more that where where it ends and it's not within one move of the starting point. And it, this is a closed tour if it is within one of the starting point. Basically, you can start all over, right? And if it's open when you can't start all over. So again, Euler, it make major advances in this, takes this and also applies it to graph theory, takes it and he also makes advancements in this where he he comes up with a particular number of of uh, of squares where this would work um again the eight by eight i believe there is a solvable closed tour but in anything that results in an odd number of square tiles it is impossible for there to be a closed tour simply because of the way that again these are all arranged and then again we're not going into deep deep stuff about this but if anyone's familiar a little bit with chess you can maybe imagine taking the knight and just seeing, okay, well, how many how many paths can I make out of this knight, right? And that and that's the whole question. He took this and he solved it mathematically speaking, right? So now he's made. Now again, I feel bad because I'm not talking about all the things that he's done, and there are so that's many life. things. I know that that is life, <laughs> but there are so many things that Leonard Euler has achieved in his life. So, I mean, if you guys were interested in what I was just talking about in relating to Euler, go ahead. You know, Wikipedia is amazing. I mean, yeah, probably. Why not? Like Wikipedia, what, what Wikipedia allows you to do is research the particular subjects. You know what I mean? So Wikipedia gives you the outline, but it shouldn't give you the content. Okay. You know what I mean? All right. No, it's just funny because you're trying to explain Wikipedia. <laughs> I, yeah, I no, think I everybody know. It has knows. nothing to do with this. I'm just, I'm just trying to say if you are trying to search for Euler, uh, Wikipedia is always, I mean, it's always a good resource, but the internet itself is always a little bit, you know, a little mm -hmm. more trustworthy with those papers and stuff like that. Well, I don't, yeah, I, I don't think I want to add anything else with Euler. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. welcome to the end of the podcast. Thank you for Man. listening today. I hope you There's enjoyed. There's so many things I haven't spoken about. Like, he's made so many advances in optics, in in astronomy, in logic, in in all of these fields that, again, unfortunately, we don't have time for, nor I really can get into the depth of because I myself am not too familiar with them. But they are all very interesting things to check out because, as mentioned, arguably one of the greatest mathematicians alive. Fantastic.
Yeah. As I was saying, I hope you learned a lot about Pythagoras, about Euler, and about their lives. Let us know if there's anyone else uh, that you want us to talk about in the comments of the YouTube section, or you can hit us up on Instagram at math.physics.podcast. Make sure to go follow us there. Like the video, like everything, whatever, whatever. This has been... <laughs> whatever, whatever. God damn, this guy. Episode number 76 of the Math and Physics Podcast. I'm your host, Parker. And I'm Ray. And we will see you soon. Bye, guys.